Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Huge doubts over carbon credits, a key pillar of net zero construction. Pop-up urinal death prompts debate over London's vanishing public toilets. Michael Gove pledges to scrap feudal leaseholder system and fears Stratford's LED-clad sphere could shine as bright as the sun. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Katie Marks. Katie is an architect and director of Citizens Design Bureau. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Net zero has rapidly become one of the biggest buzzwords on the global stage for companies, countries and corporations alike. And in the race to tackle the climate crisis, the carbon intensive built environment sector is no different. The UK government is committed to reaching net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, with the majority of London councils pegging to reach this by 2030, and a growing number of net zero buildings already piercing the skylines of London and beyond. To be considered net zero, buildings must offset any carbon release during the construction and operation of the building. However, as a compelling Guardian article revealed last week, the effectiveness of these offsetting schemes can be completely ineffective with one study reporting more than 90% of offsets failed to cut CO2. An investigation into one company, Vera, the world leader in the $2 billion voluntary offsets market, found that almost none of its rainforest credits amount to genuine carbon reductions, with some even suspected of making global heating worse. Each of these carbon credits equates to approved projects around the world, which Vera says are taking carbon out of the atmosphere. Many of these rainforest protection schemes work by preventing further deforestation rather than planting new trees, and investigators have questioned how effective they were at doing even this. The research, led by scientists at Cambridge University, found that Vera had overestimated the forest loss scenarios by a staggering 400%, rendering these carbon credits almost totally ineffective. Barbara Heyer, director of the Barclay Carbon Trading Project, commented saying, quote, Companies are using credits to make claims of reducing emissions when most of these credits don't represent emissions reductions. We need an alternative process, she says, the offset market is broken. So Katie, what are carbon credits and how exactly are new buildings calculated using them to be net zero? The idea of carbon credits as a principal method of meeting net zero targets is really quite a cynical approach. 
to sustainable design, fundamentally it's saying let's carry on with business as usual um, and outsource the carbon question to someone else, let someone else deal with it. So as a principal means of offsetting carbon, it's just fundamentally flawed. The way that if you're going to use carbon credits, because because it is a really, really difficult thing to to make a net zero carbon building at the moment in, in our current climate. But if we make every step, every effort to reduce the carbon in our buildings, that is the obvious thing to do. You build less, you build with less carbon, such that if there's a little bit left over that you really can't do anything but to offset if you're in a really built up urban environment, for example, then you may need... You may want to do some carbon offsetting to really just feel confident that you've got to completely net zero. But if that's your principal means of offsetting or if it's used to such an extent that it's even just a major means of offsetting within your whole carbon strategy, it's just flawed and wrong and it's not sustainable at all for all the reasons that you've just said. So are you effectively saying that carbon offsetting only really makes sense on something which is already inherently green, already inherently That's um, right. architect, um, ecologically sensitive and climate adjusted. Anything, anything that you come across that's claiming to be net zero and is like a big shivering new office building or involve the demolition of an existing housing state, that is, we should just instinctively assume that, that that's very difficult for that to I think be legit. It's really interesting that you use the word instinct because I think that in design terms, in architecture terms, that's often what's missing. Um, that we need as as designers, as a society actually, to build up carbon instincts. And that applies really, really strongly in, in architecture. So just as an example, a net zero carbon approach needs to stem from a commitment to reduce the embodied carbon in the design first and foremost. So you lose use less carbon to begin with, and then the whole carbon credit offsetting issue becomes far less critical in, in retaining the carbon balance. And also that's because carbon calculations are really complex. And the different ways, the different parameters that designers use to measure embodied carbon can vary greatly. So you can get cradle to gate, which is, you know, from the point of manufacture of, of materials through to the completion of the construction of the building. You can consider cradle to grave, which is including the whole life use and the demolition and the carbon associated with that. And then you can look at cradle to cradle, which is what happens when those materials are demolished and turned into something else. Um, and the way in which you therefore consider embodied carbon, you can you can see that it's vastly different. And one of the big problems with that is that you can get really, really skewed figures coming out of the end of it. So, for example, we are building at the moment, or we're designing a new visitor centre for the National Trust. The National Trust have uh, an aim to be net zero carbon um, by 2030. So we have gone about designing a building that is almost entirely biodegradable. It's made, it's built of straw and timber using limecrete floors, no plastics, no concrete in the foundations, recycled blown glass and cork insulation, this kind of thing. And yet, when we went through the standard embodied carbon calculation, it doesn't come out 
automatically particularly great. And that's because a lot of embodied carbon calculations don't consider what's called carbon sequestration, that timber holds carbon. And providing timber is sustainably sourced, then actually you're capturing more and more carbon by planting more trees and using timber. But that doesn't come through in the calculation. And so a lot of there's a whole carbon industry that's measuring embodied carbon that's actually favoring continuing business as usual. Because if you look at only a particular proportion of the life of a building, i.e. cradle to grave, and you don't consider the sequestered carbon, then actually concrete with some cement alternatives looks pretty good. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear that because obviously you can imagine a situation where in those conversations you're being pushed down this carbon offsetting route. Now, as we're hearing, the offsetting route is very problematic. You know, the Guardian article and the letters in response to it referred to forests which would obviously existed and were not going to be demolished. But then the idea of protecting that forest was then being used as a claim that carbon was being taken out of the atmosphere. But obviously, you know, that seems a bit spurious. It's not like creating a new forest. Um, but we know in a city like London, we still have uh, massive construction needs. You know, we've got something like uh, Crossrail 2, which is hopefully going to be built one day. We've got something, we've got the enormous need for new social housing that's sustainable and equitable. Um, we're going to have to build on an awful lot of stuff in London, potentially. How does that then work as an alternative? Because can we come at like major infrastructure projects, major house building projects with the same kind of approach that you're bringing to a visitor centre for the National Trust? Or is, is there another alternative we need to be looking for? I think that we are a sort of a society of sound bites. So we're looking for often, you know, these sort of panacea statements when actually we need to be moving with great political and social will towards that. And actually, if we did that in really significant ways, even in massive infrastructure projects, we'd make a huge difference. And I think in terms of what we can do on, on large scale projects, just as an example, so War Thistleton have just built a large office building. I think it's five stories, completely timber, cross-laminated timber. CLT, cross-laminated timber, is basically yes. wood that you can use in amazing structural approaches. A bit like how people would use steel it's and concrete. Basically it's, jumbo, than... it's basically jumbo plywood. Yeah. So it can be used as an alternative to um, steel or concrete, exactly, as, Sounds great. as you say. And, and you know, there are quite a few buildings that are being built like that. But obviously, as a sort of post-Grenfell impact, there is fear around using timber. So there is now updates to the building regulations that say timber shouldn't be used on buildings over 18 metres high. Um, some of that logic is is flawed, some of it is sound, and some of it's, you know, just fear. But if you think of cities like Paris or Edinburgh, where they have an urban grain that's all around, you know, five or six stories high, and actually there's a real continuity to that and a real beauty to it, and still lots of variety within that, actually we need to be using these kind of constraints as opportunities for real beauty the technology is out there. If we can, you know, invent telescopic urinals, we can build buildings that are made out of timber and are sustainable at the kind of scale of, of an urban cityscape.
Yeah, and certainly gentle density is is a very like London typology. It's often cited that Kensington and Chelsea is the densest part of the city, um, and it doesn't have any high rise. Exactly, uh, exactly. That that um, low rise, high density approach is very appropriate to British cities, and timber technology that's highly sustainable, if renewed through sustainable management of forests, is is totally viable in this kind of setting. I think it's really interesting what you're saying about how net zero really needs to go beyond a kind of certification, beyond a kind of like sector approach and to be a a bigger cultural thing that we all get behind so that we can all understand we all play a part in the way we use our buildings and the way we travel and so on and so forth. However, if we look at the sort of culture of mega projects and like if we look at like in the aj this week there's an article about uh, peter cook uh, david ajay like big london architects people who know about the climate crisis people who are embedded in a city where councils are declaring climate emergencies and they're taking part in designing this thing called the line in saudi arabia like this enormous mega project 170 kilometers long two shining skyscrapers with everything you could possibly imagine which is claimed to be net zero as a project right how do you shift culture around net zero when it, se- it seems like it's a losing battle if things like the line are being built? I think, again, it comes back to this idea of carbon instincts. If you look at what they're putting into this linear city, there are artificial lakes. There's a ski resort. I mean, on what planet does somebody get up in the morning as a, as a professional with integrity and go to work and try and put a ski resort in a desert and say that that is net zero carbon by doing it, you know, in very intelligent ways. But nevertheless, it's just objectively bonkers. And I think what frustrates me most about that that type of project is that the kind of brains and the intelligence that's going into that design is excellent. Like there's some really interesting technology being talked about, there's really innovative thinking, and yet it's being applied to counter what nature wants to do. If we invested in that thinking and that innovation in the places where it's needed most and in the places where it can turbocharge nature rather than act against it, I mean, just imagine how amazing that would be. Before we move on, just quickly, with carbon offsetting, is there anything could be done on like a policy sense? Could like London just say... In planning terms, we ain't buying any calculations which cite carbon offsetting. Or is it? Could it, could it, the profession do something? Could the RIBA say we don't want architects to rely on this? Or it's a really good point to talk about what we need to do in terms of statutory frameworks and regulation. And I think before talking about carbon offsetting, we as architects and clients and local authorities and society as a whole need to understand embodied carbon. In, in much more accurate ways, that building that kind of carbon instinct that I keep talking about. And I think one of the things that we need to do is build a bank of data and get better at literally just measuring what we already do, bad or good. Like, you know, on our, this project that I was talking about for the National Trust, we may not quite reach our net zero targets, uh, but we need to have the humility to sort of share that learning and share the data that we have generated through that project and I think that um, as a planning condition to every project now you need to be doing post-occupancy evaluations and publishing them as a planning condition and part of that should be a embodied carbon study. 
And moving beyond that, then that building regulations would ultimately have a embodied carbon targets um, that you would need to, to meet. But I think the competency of how embodied carbon is, is measured needs to be built up first and just a general body of data that people are willing to share that's open source and that there's a carbon literacy around the design profession, which is not really there at the moment. A worker was tragically crushed to death by a telescopic pop-up urinal on the streets of central London last week. This was widely reported by the regional news outlets. Firefighters worked to free the man who was critically injured while working underneath a hydraulic urinal in Cambridge Circus in the West End. Despite the efforts, he was pronounced dead at the scene. Since the incident, a second public urinal near the area has also been closed. Telescopic or open-air urinals have been a fixture in central London for more than a decade, with several surrounding the West End where this tragic accident occurred. Brought in to address public urination in many of the capital's nightlife hotspots, these facilities remain below ground during the day, only rising up to street level in the evenings to be used by partygoers. So, Katie, this freak accident got quite a lot of coverage over the weekend. Very shocking. Um... As an architect, what was your reaction to the news? Well, I think, first of all, just as a human, you feel incredibly sorry for the guy and his family. It, as a designer, on some level, it made me feel a sort of sense of shame. And I don't mean, you know, that those particular designers are culpable. You know, obviously, we don't know what the circumstances of that. But this ability for our society and as designers to generate such complex, expensive and carbon heavy contraptions to service the most basic bodily functions just seems to be a kind of sign of the times, <laughs> you know, that rather than educating our men that there's a time and a place to pee, um, we are inventing these insane contraptions and I don't want to be glib about it because clearly there was a problem in the West End there is a problem in the West End with with people urinating everywhere and it, it being really unhygienic the first pop-up urinal I just I googled this appeared in Westminster in 2002 and um, one of the councillors said she intended to use the pop-up loose to eradicate the menace of drunken men emptying their bladders across the West End so, you know, there was a real reason for it to be there. But when you just sort of dissect that a little bit, the menace of men, well, what about the women that need to pee? What about the people with disability? What about the elderly? What about people with illnesses that mean they need to go to the loo? All of those things. And yet we are catering to the people who are able to hold it in. They just can't be bothered to. And so... You know, there's one question is a sort of society question about who do we decide to cater for? But there's a much, there's obviously a much bigger question about the loss of public toilets generally in London and the fact that we have far fewer public amenities. And now in, in the mayor's sort of planning guidance around that, they don't even bother saying that um, more public amenities would be a good idea. It's all about obligating private enterprises to create publicly accessible, freely accessible facilities in large-scale developments. So it's almost like 
given up with the idea of public communities. It's not a legal requirement for local authorities. So in, in um, times of austerity, those services just fall off the wayside. I wanted to say this is a horrific loss. Like It is enormously traumatic for everybody involved. I think the whole city, I think everybody witnessing something like this is is really disturbing. And... I, I, obviously, the exact circumstances of this have not been have not been detailed publicly, but like so many industrial accidents, this is clearly something that was preventable, something that should never have happened. Um, we touched on it briefly that you know, lose in pubs and cafes, you increasingly have to pay to use them. Uh, as you said, there's scarcely any public funding available facilities like this. Publicly accessible loos used to be widespread across the city. Why are there so few of them now? Because like this is this ain't a poor city. We've just spent billions of pounds restoring the Battersea power station, you know, and yet we we, we can't sort out some public toilets. I think the answer is that we spend money privately. It's private finance that projects that you cite are funded by, but public financing of public facilities is almost zero for austerity reasons. They're, they're, they're spending their money on schools, hospitals, other things. And, and because there is no statutory obligation to provide facilities, um, toilet facilities for the public, they don't. Now, uh, Leslie Lowe estimates in her book, uh, No Place to Go, that a quarter of the population regularly has a pressing need to use public toilets. Is the lack of lose a, a sort of clear ableist issue in our society uh, like you're saying it's freezing a lot of people out it's making a lot of people very uncomfortable potentially meaning a lot of people don't get to enjoy the kind of social or economic life that they that they're entitled to what kind of impact does the lack of toilets have on people's lives who are reliant on having access to them that's one of the biggest issues that if you think of homeless people if you think of people who work outside um, if you think of people with disabilities, health problems, children and families, and, and that severely limits where people go and how people live their lives in a, in a dignified way. And that's also, you know, coming back to this issue of the telescopic urinal, that's what actually is so frustrating about that in some ways, that they are catering to the one proportion of the population should sort themselves out. It's know? not a necessity. It's, no. got, it's basically entirely willfully and chosen. <laughs> it's totally uh, discriminatory. Yeah. I mean, it's actually, when you think about it, it's just really, really ridiculous. And not only that, it's this particularly overly complex and, as it turns out, dangerous solution to a, a problem that is only being solved for one group. Leveling up Secretary Michael Gove once again grabbed headlines at a convenient time for the government this weekend by vowing to scrap the, quote, feudal leasehold system altogether. Both the Times and Evening Standard jumped on Gove's pledge, uh, which would mean millions of leaseholders in England will be able to buy their properties outright. UK leaseholders own their property, but not the land on which it is built, for a set period of years ranging from just a few decades to centuries, after which the ownership of the property passes back to the freeholder. In most cases, they pay ground rent to the landowner and have to pay to extend the lease if they wish to keep the property for longer. The reforms that Gove has alluded to will make it much easier for leaseholders to combine their efforts to buy out the freehold of a building and will eliminate expensive management fees and ground rent. Speaking to Sky News, Gove said, quote, 
in crude terms, if you buy a flat, that flat should be yours. You shouldn't be on the hook for changes that managing agents and other people can land you with, which are gouging. Gove's proposed leasehold reform will also include flats situated above commercial units, which currently cannot be bought. So, Katie, what do you make of this latest proposal uh, from Michael Gove? How will a reform of the leasehold system impact the housing crisis? Is this a meaningful step forward or not? It's a really complex issue, actually. And I think that he picks up on something that in some ways is, is true. So the leasehold system is kind of feudal. Um, but it's quite interesting that he's choosing to pick up on that right now. So, for example, um, I think we all know, especially post-Grentfell, that um, a lot of particularly blocks of flats are needing to be upgraded, their facades changed and renovated to be safer. And then you have the double whammy of thermal upgrades required in order to meet our, you know, our climate targets. And what's happening is that freeholders are basically transferring that obligation onto leaseholders. And so, you know, people are suddenly out of the blue being hit with enormous bills to replace all the windows or whatever. And yet, one, they don't have the money. And two, they're saying, well, you know, if I don't even own this for more than, you know, 50 years or whatever the lease the terms are, then why is it even worth my while to be paying for this? You should be paying for it. So he's he's picking up on a real issue and a real problem. However, if you take something on as a freeholder, it doesn't take away the need to thermally upgrade the building or to take away the unsafe cladding. It's basically shifting the responsibility onto private long leaseholders as they will become under his plans. So we all know that huge amounts of work needs to be done to our current building stock to suddenly say, hey everyone, here's, here's the carrot, which is have a house on much better terms than you previously had them. But then you realise, well, actually it's all your fault if the cladding is unsafe and it's all your fault if, you know, it's really inefficient um, in energy terms and all of those things. So I think that that is a real issue that has to be sort of talked about. There are different ways of approaching the the value of leaseholds as a model. So, for example, one of the problems with leaseholds is that a private unscrupulous freeholder can still charge ground rent and can raise the ground rent. So you can get a situation where somebody owns the leasehold, but the ground rent has gone up to the point that it's unaffordable for them. But it's it's too expensive for them to sell it. It's not attractive for someone to buy it, but they also can't afford to live in it. So they're in a conundrum. So he's right that there is an issue, but I would possibly be looking at regulating ground rents and the ability for them to be raised and keep them at a pep up corn, i.e. zero level, rather than be um, raising that. And I think also the model of leasehold is particularly useful for, for example, local authorities. It allows local authorities to monetize an asset, but to retain it. 
so that we're not kind of selling off the family silver, if you like. So over the weekend, um, the AJ also reported that Gove has become the first housing secretary to admit the government's building regulations were faulty and unclear before the Grenfell Tower fire. Speaking to the Sunday Times, Gove said, the government did not think hard enough or police effectively enough the whole system of building safety. He went on, undoubtedly, I believe that the guidance was so faulty and ambiguous that it allowed unscrupulous people to exploit a broken system in a way that led to tragedy. So, Katie, how significant is it for a housing minister to be admitting this for the first time? Because you know, this is a government which for years has been kind of making a virtue out of this idea of cutting red tape. I think it's very significant, not least legally for the families and involved and, and the consultants involved as, as part of a design team. I think that it's something that we all knew as architects that it was ambiguous and flawed exactly as he said. East Londoners living close to the planned Stratford Sphere mega venue have been issued a stark warning of potential light pollution and sleepless nights in the future. The London Legacy Development Corporation approved controversial plans for the UK's largest concert arena one year ago, despite concerns from residents over excessive light pollution from the 360-degree advertising screens. Now, as the planning committee debates the finer details of the building's illuminated cladding, warnings have been issued from neighbours of the project's Las Vegas twin. Much further advanced in its construction and due to open later this year, the enormous 111-metre-high spherical building in Las Vegas is already being described as, quote, sun on earth. One Las Vegas local who lives two miles away from the US sphere said the light pollution increased exponentially when the venue's screens were tested. And bear in mind, this is Las Vegas. It's got a lot of lights in it already. Um, despite the more residential setting of Stratford, the LLDC granted the Madison Square Garden Company a 25-year lease for the sphere. And that is despite residents' concerns over being kept awake at night and its impact on driver concentration so that's you know, someone's going along they might be distracted mm. by it uh, the planning application must now go to the mayor of london sadiq khan who has the power to refuse it uh, so katie what do you make of this plans for the msg sphere or stratford sphere as it's known um, do you think this will be a positive thing for east london it's a juicy one because there's lots of there's lots of issues that are embedded in this going ahead Fundamentally for me, I mean, there are issues around light pollution from an ecological point of view and also just advertising. But I think what I'm sort of interested in stemming from this conversation is the role of, of cultural venues in the city. You know, we have to acknowledge that we live in a capital city. And so I, I don't think it's bad in itself to have large venues like that. Um, I think, you know, every capital city needs stuff like that. But what I think is really sad is that we are promoting those kinds of venues over the small venues that are actually the kind of lifeblood of our city's culture. It's really really, really important that we see cultural venues as being part of an ecosystem. And, you know, when you get urban areas that feel vibrant, it's not just because someone just dumped a massive music venue in there that everyone drives to and from. It's where there are shops, there's parks, there's public spaces, there's things that they spill out into and there is life around them at different times of the day they have a kind of diurnal range of activity rather than this sort of you know rock up concert go idea and again it's commercializing it 
it's all in the hands of one really large company yeah. um, that is monopolizing our cultural experiences. And it is a monopoly. It's a monoculture of, of culture, which is, in essence, really, really problematic for a capital city that is as diverse as London. There are theatres in residential areas, right? You look, I don't know, look at the Haymarket Theatre in Mayfair. Okay, they, they houses and theatres sit side by side. The issue here at discussion is the impact on homes in Stratford. You know, what does a construction like this say about our attitude to housing in particular, or or, or is it just to East London? Is it just Strat- Stratford could have this, but other places, no way, you'd never get away with it. I mean, I think that is probably an accurate reflection of of some of the thinking that, you know, it's Stratford, it doesn't matter. Would they build it in Kensington? Of course they wouldn't. But that's also the thing that's really sad, that actually it's become increasingly difficult, not just because of COVID, but all kinds of other regulations around antisocial behaviour and things like that. Um, It's been increasingly difficult to have live music in on high streets, in pubs, in clubs, um, all of those sorts of things. And yet they're bringing this in, and it, that's crazy. We're on to the culture section. Okay, so big things coming up. There was an announcement uh, linking to the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition. This Peter Barber, the legendary architect, is going to be curating uh, the show. as architecture room within it and has called for entries. Uh, it was put out on Twitter looking for submissions. The theme for the room this year is Making is Thinking. So Peter Barber, someone who's designed a lot of social housing, really interesting brick, contextual architecture across London, uh, said that he's keen to see work that's experimental, provocative and visionary in its response to the climate crisis. Katie, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on Lundown. Thank you for being on the show. Um, where should listeners go to stay up to speed on your work? Go to our website, go to our Instagram, um, at Citizens Design Bureau. Um, yeah, hope to hear from lots of people. Cheers, Katie. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Lundown a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.